Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Illuminating God, you led wandering magi to the infant Jesus, a revelation of your light upon every person. In union with all who have and who have yet to glimpse the light of your wondrous grace, lead every person more deeply into your heart, which is love. Amen. And please be seated. Today is the first Sunday after the Epiphany. Epiphany celebrates the light of Christ for all people. Last year, on the first Sunday after the Epiphany, just four days after the attack on the Capitol, I preached a sermon titled, The Epiphany Gap. The sermon, in the sermon, I talked about the undeniable connection between stories and systems, in particular, the stories and systems of evangelicalism and Trumpism. And my point was very clear. The stories we tell and the systems in which we participate contribute to great good in this world or to great harm in this world, depending on the stories that we tell and the systems in which we participate. And so I want to say it again, the stories that we tell and the systems in which we participate contribute to great good or great harm. In just over a week, we'll remember the life of Dr. King on Martin Luther King Day. It was Dr. King who wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail these words. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to show until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And so on this first Sunday after the Epiphany, just one year after the connection between evangelicalism and Trumpism was made visible for the entire world to see, and just eight days from Martin Luther King Jr.'s remembrance. We're going to take this morning to talk about white supremacy, which is what Pastor Ben astutely talked about a year ago 
in which he pointed out that white supremacy often rises from what could be called Christian supremacy. And so I'll begin by talking about a Christian story that's been used for great harm over millennia. And then I'm going to stand on Ben's shoulders from a year ago to talk about how Christian supremacy has been used, especially in the United States, to support white supremacy. And then I'll conclude with an invitation back to the ancient, beautiful, revolutionary gospel of Jesus. A Christian story. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 9, the righteous Noah had built an ark. His wife, three sons, and their wives had endured a flood, and they all lived to tell about it. In chapter 9, God and Noah enter into a covenant, and all seems to be going pretty well for this new story about this new humankind, until, right, always until, until Noah, a man of the soil, we're told, plants a vineyard, gets knocked out drunk, and while naked, was looked upon by one of his sons, Ham. Now, Nobody actually knows what this means. Ancient to contemporary theologians make all kinds of guesses, spanning a literal reading, Ham merely looked at his dad naked, to a far-reaching reading, Ham castrated his dad. These are the two extreme interpretations of the story. In between these two extremes, some guess that Ham touched his dad. Others guess that Ham placed a magical hex upon his dad. Others guess that Ham molested his dad, and others yet guess that Ham raped his dad. And again, nobody knows. What we do know is that whatever happened, it made Noah really, really upset. Because after waking from his drunken stupor, he blesses two sons, Shem and Japheth, for covering him up. But he curses Ham, the father of Canaan. Not once, saying, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. But twice, saying, May Canaan be his brother's slave. Now, although there are many confusing aspects to this entire account, such as a worldwide flood, or a barge-like boat floating on top of wild waters for over a month, or like two of every animal, carnivorous and herbivorous, peacefully abiding in a boat for weeks, And on top of all of these things, the idea of God annihilating every living soul other than Noah's family. So just besides those confusing aspects to this story, we also have muddled details, such as Ham, who is said to be the middle son in Genesis chapter 5, chapter 10, and 1 Chronicles chapter 1, but in Genesis chapter 9, he's said to be the youngest son. That's weird. And then there's the fact that we're told that he's the father of Canaan, which in later biblical texts is connected to Cush, Egypt, and Put, which some scholars eventually connect to Africa and or Arabia and or Syria and or Palestine and or Mesopotamia. You see how confusing this is. Which is real weird because we haven't even made it to Genesis chapter 10, which provides a table of nations spanning six generations before chapter 11, in which the world breaks into scattered people and nations when everyone is scattered and they all start speaking in their own language. And so clearly, whoever is writing these chapters is writing from way down the road about things that weren't written down but merely talked about for hundreds and hundreds of years. And just to make clear how weird this all is, I'd like to add one more point. Poor Canaan, right? 
I mean, poor Canaan. When, when Noah curses his son, his son hasn't even had Canaan yet. Canaan's not even born, and he's already cursed. And yet, yet, despite all of these wild points that I've made, listen to how this passage has been used, I would say misused, terribly and horrifyingly abused from the earliest days of interpretation all the way into the 20th century. Many rabbis around the 4th, 3rd, and 2nd centuries BCE uh, took an allegorical approach to Canaan's curse in order to stigmatize racial features. Here's an example, and I quote, The descendants of Ham through Canaan, therefore, have red eyes, because Ham looked upon the nakedness of his father. They have misshapen lips, because Ham spoke with his lips to his brothers about the unseemly condition of his father. They have twisted curly hair, because Ham turned and twisted his head round to see the nakedness of his father. And they go about naked, because Ham did not cover the nakedness of his father. So here we see very early the curse of Ham in its earliest days of interpretation being used to denigrate bodily features of certain kinds of people in the world. And then there's Barosus, a priest from the third century BCE, who explained, Ham was banished to the dark regions of Africa, forever carrying the taint of corruption. And so here we see the curse of Ham being used to denigrate a geographical location. And then we have the church fathers like Irenaeus, who explained that Ham's curse extended not just to Canaan, but to Canaan's entire race. And then we have Lactantius, a Christian leader who became an advisor to the Roman emperor Constantine, who said that Ham went into exile and settled in a part of that land which is now called Arabia. Now, stick with me here. Moving from ancient Jewish and early Christian writings into medieval Christendom, we begin to see the Ham story used to advocate for slavery and class. Around 1125, Honorarius of Attune wrote that Shem, Japheth, and Ham, so the three brothers, the three sons of Noah, represented society's three estates, free men, soldiers, and servants. Putting it more clearly, around 1238, Chartres Cathedral explained Noah's three sons as three forerunners for divinely ordained classes. This is, this is huge. Priesthood, knighthood, and serfhood, ordained by God, according to the Noah story and the curse of Ham. As we live, leave medieval Christendom and enter into the early modern period in the years surrounding the Reformation, despite its quote-unquote focus on careful interpretation, the legend of Ham continued. Martin Luther explained, God hates Ham with the utmost hatred. How's that for a Christian Reformation? of which we find ourselves a part of. And Luther explained, cursed he traveled to Babylon, started a new government and religion. And then there's the Portuguese scholar Gomez Enzes de Azarara, around 1445 wrote, Noah laid upon Ham, cursing him this way that his race should be subject to all other races of the world. And from this race, these blacks are descended. And in the mid-1600s, John Milton in his famous Paradise Lost wrote, Witness the irreverent son of him who built the ark, who for the shame done to his father hear this heavy curse, servant of servants on his vicious race. Notice the evolution. Noah curses Ham. 
Ancient rabbis denigrate particular racial features. Ancient priests denigrate particular geographical locations. Church fathers denigrate a particular race of people. Medieval Christians promote a divinely ordered three-tiered class. And early modern Christians specifically connect the curse of Ham to people who are black. Here's an excerpt from Augustine Camlet's Dictionary of the Holy Bible written during the Enlightenment. Ham's name means burnt, swarthy, or black. And Camlet, it's believed, is the first scholarly Bible commentator to link Ham directly to blackness and to slavery. To be clear, I'm brushing with a broad stroke here. I'm not intending to say that this is how every person understood the curse of Ham throughout human history. Nonetheless, these are unequivocally the strains of thought that build on strains of thought, that build on strains of thought that influence story, imagination, and religion throughout millennia. The literature is clear. By the time we get to the United States, Southerners believe that Ham's curse to be servant of servants was their definitive proof that the enslavement of black Africans was God's will. They even reasoned that Ham's sin went against Southern culture, explaining Ham's transgression was a violation of familial loyalty that marked Ham and his African descendants as utterly devoid of honor and thus fit for slavery. And in the 1900s, as late as the 20th century, just 90 years ago, the prestigious theologian James Cone wrote these words about Dr. King's childhood in the 1930s. In those formative years, the Klan was as active as ever, striking fear with their hooded night marches and burning crosses, a powerful reminder that not all crosses were liberating and loving. Even when Jesus' name was invoked, white ministers sometimes served as mob leaders blessing lynchings or citing the stories of Ham to justify white supremacy as a divine right. And so there you have it. We've moved from a bizarre, confusing, and terribly obscure passage in Genesis chapter 9 to support the denigration of racial features and geographical locations to a three-tiered class ordained by God, which approves of slavery, to make clear that the divine hates an entire people to be specific people who are black, to righteously maintain a Southern culture by owning black people as property, and to form group societies and churches throughout the United States as late as the 20th century that abused, beat, and lynched black women and men in the name of Ham and in the name of God. Now, you may be thinking right now, thank goodness we're past that. But we're not. I mean, maybe you've gone your whole life without hearing a white Christian use the story of Ham to justify the righteousness of their racism. But the Bible has been used to demean and diminish all kinds of people throughout millennia. Women, divorcees, quote-unquote heretics. And we could certainly have any queer person from our community tell at least one story about how the Bible has been used to refuse them inclusion, belonging, and participation. The Bible's misuse that has caused abuse is terrifyingly long. It's horrifying. And this brings me to Christian supremacy, which Ben talked about a little over a year ago. You see, one reason for white supremacy in our country is due to our heritage of Christian supremacy. 
brief history lesson, shorter than my ham lesson. Here we go. In 1493, Pope Alexander VI explained what is called the Doctrine of Discovery, which, ex- which stated, among other works well-pleasing to the divine majesty and cherished of our heart, this assuredly ranks highest, the highest task of Christian people, that in our times especially, the Catholic faith and the Christian religion be exalted and be everywhere increased and spread, that the health of souls be cared for, and that barbarous nations be overthrown and brought to the faith itself. This doctrine of discovery, which was actually colonial supremacy in the name of God, undergirded Christian thought in the United States. For example, 19th century Bishop August Martin of Louisiana defended slavery on Christian grounds, seeing slavery as an eminently Christian work in which the redemption of millions of human beings would pass from the darkest intellectual light to the sweet light of the gospel. And through westward expansion, the notion of manifest destiny, similar to the doctrine of discovery, underwrote the displacement of indigenous peoples. For example, Senator Thomas Hart Benton argued for the annexation of Oregon using this theological Christian supremacy argument, and I quote, It would seem that the white race alone received the command to subdue and replenish the earth. For the white race is the only race that has obeyed it, the only one that hunts out new and distant lands and even a new world to subdue and replenish. Three and a half centuries ago, this race, in obedience to the great command, arrived in the new world and found new lands to subdue and to replenish. Of course, when Senator Thomas Hart Benton mentions obedience to the great commandment, he's referring to God's command in Genesis 1 and 2 to steward the creation. But it also has echoes of Jesus' great commandment in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus, just before ascending to heaven, declared, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, bringing all of this together, we have Bible stories that have been used to denigrate and subjugate people of color. We have a great commission read by white Western Christians as biblical support for Christian supremacy in the world. And you add to these two things a rousing belief in an afterlife in which people who do not believe what they're told to believe by white people are sent by God, by God, to eternal chambers of torture. You add all of that together, and American Christianity is ripe and ready for endless atrocities in God's name. In Jesus' gospel, a gospel that declares in Luke 4 freedom from bondage, healing for sick, release for the oppressed, the proclamation of God's favor on everyone and on everything, the actual gospel of Jesus, Well, that social, ethical, and very practical gospel of goodness and light for all people is swallowed up by Christian ideology in which people must think and live like white Christians or else. Always or else. Thanks for going with me on that journey. That is a sad journey, isn't it? In conclusion, the stories we tell and the systems in which we participate contribute to great good or great harm. We're at a church that's affirming. We're at a church where women can serve at every level. We're at a church that 
goes into the ambiguity and complexity of life. And I believe that that is necessary for good religion. I believe that religion that excludes women or queer people or doesn't go into ambiguity and has it all figured out simply perpetuates Trumpism and violence and biblical harm in the name of God. And Christian supremacy insists our way, our thoughts, our life in God's name or else. I.e. believe or else. Believe or else. Believe or else is a very white supremacist thing to say. It's racist, it's bad Bible reading, it's horrifyingly violent, and it's truly anti-Christ in this world. Let us never forget the early Jesus movement was not about being right or being white or being straight or being male. It was in its earliest days about following a Messiah who declared the favor of the Lord upon you. You, whoever you are, especially those of you who are told by dominant society that you do not belong, that you cannot belong, that you must change, become just like us, or else you cannot be a part of this, especially that kind of language. And to those kinds of people, it is to those people who Jesus is proclaiming his message over and over and over again to. Pearl Church, our religious work is to bridge the epiphany gap, which is truly more than religious work. It is actually deeply, pervasively human work. Human work that makes loving, generous space for every person until, as Isaiah imagines, we belong together in the midst of all of our difference. And until that great day arrives, we will express a sacred story and extend a common table that animate life not by fear or guilt or shame or duty or even a sense of supremacy, which is forever violence in God's name. Instead, at Pearl, we will ceaselessly and tirelessly express a thoughtfully sacred story that's always informed by stories of the other. And we will extend a truly common table that celebrates the vast diversity of God because good stories and inclusive communities are the bedrock of life that's animated by divine love. May it be so, and let us pray. Illuminating God, you led wandering magi to the infant Jesus, a revelation of your light upon every person. In union with all who have and who have yet to glimpse the light of your wondrous grace, lead every person more deeply into your heart, which is love. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.